0: Well, today's something a little different on the podcast. We're going to deal with two topics, both in the news, both in front of parliament and both cases where words really matter. A little bit later, we'll talk with Dr. Dwight Newman. He is the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Rights. He's a constitutional law expert. We're going to look at the question of UNDRIP, Bill C-15, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Very complicated issue. But before we do all that, we want to come back to one of our favorite topics here, uh, Bill C-10. What is going on? The internet was going to be this unprecedented tool for communication and commerce and democratization. The more information Information you had the wiser the choices you would be able to make instead it's become a zone of surveillance, not just by big tech owners, but now, if you look at this piece of legislation by the government itself. So today why free speech matters and why censorship is dangerous and. Um, When you're watching what's going on in the House of Commons and the gong show that it's the Heritage Committee, you have good reason to be concerned. So we've gone back to Peter Menzies, former editor in chief and former editor in chief and publisher of the Calgary Herald. He spent 10 years on the CRTC, this final four as vice chair of telecommunications, and he's currently a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. So welcome back, Peter. Thank you for letting us give this another go and seeing if we can shed some light on it thanks
1: always a pleasure yeah thanks
0: <laughs> the uh the wits, witnessing what went on this past week in ottawa has been embarrassing um and it's almost offensive we've got liberal members of this committee um putting forward amendments in secret not letting the public or the opposition look at it it's just it's I've never seen anything like it. It's a very illegitimate process if I can put it that way. So we don't really know in the end how this is gonna turn out. This ostensibly was supposed to be about changes to the Broadcast Act to look at things like discoverability of Canadian content, which sort of means can we find enough of it online and it's turned into this other discussion. So, This week, uh, one of your former colleagues, former chair of the CRTC, said this bill is no way to run a railroad. This is not how you try to regulate matters. Do you agree? (laughs) Oh,
1: absolutely. You know, I was just looking back um, for something else I was working on to three years ago when all this got started. Mm -hmm. When it's just three years ago this month, almost this week, that they launched the Broadcasting and Telecommunications Legislation Review Panel. Right. Yeah. And it all had such bright, shiny, you know, <laughs> ambition. You know, we were going to you know, modernize everything, you know, with the, the Internet would be there. And we've ended up with this sordid ending with this grubby little bill
2: that is That's
0: just so great. Feeding That's so great. It
1: is to, you know, it's just it's so sad. I mean, to, to yeah. me, it's it's like a it's a it's a it's a it's a. A tragic tale of a government all gone wrong, you know, captive by politics instead of good policy, um, desperate to please certain lobby groups. And then this, as you described, we were passing amen- secret amendments. Yeah, secret. You know, in committee, secret, right? From from people Beyond who promised transparency and, and uh, you know, and, and net neutrality and all these glowing virtues and we've got this thuggish finale. It's it's really jaw-dropping, it really is. I mean, this every time you think this can't get worse, it does.
0: Okay, here's my question, because governments do a lot of crazy stuff uh, at the end of a session uh, in June. This happens every year, nothing like this, not usually. Maybe they're heading into an election. We don't know. Certainly the Broadcast Act needs to be updated. Certainly there are concerns about how big tech operates and whether it's paying its way or paying its fair share. What What do you think they're trying to do with all this crazy stuff?
1: Um, they're either trying to just jam it all through and get it done and hope they can get it through the Senate um, and and passed before an election is called or they're just trying to get it through the house and to the senate so that they could say they've done the best they can um and then come an election the whole thing dies on the order paper anyway um i mean they they may be you know making deals around the environmental bill um that sort of thing who knows but it's very undistinguished
0: yes It certainly is. I think that's a lot. And we talked about this the last time that that this the incentive for this came largely from Quebec, that there wasn't enough protection, felt the cultural community there for their content and what they're generated generating. And they want big tech to be forced to do something about that.
1: Sure. Um, And people more familiar with political plotting than I am have suggested that. You know, they they want to make sure they get this through so they can shut down an avenue of attack that the Bloc Québécois um, might have in a possible election. Um, because, I mean, Quebec is an entirely different figure when it comes to yeah. this sort of thing. And there's a long history of um, a lower level of concern for charter rights if it comes, if it means defending culture. Yeah. So um, very much to solitudes and very likely politics.
0: Yep, I think that uh, that sort of sums that up. Let's go back to what was sort of key in this bill, which is there was a a clause section 4.1 that said all these new rules that that they were going to put in would not apply to user-generated content, meaning you and I having this conversation on a podcast or a blog that I might have or email exchanges with friends or Say I'm a 19-year-old musician and I want somebody to hear my song out there and discover me. Uh, and and they said, no, that's, we're not going to touch that. Then abruptly, they said, no, nope, that clause is out. Everything's on the table. Um, what What do you think that means? How nervous does that make you? It makes me extremely nervous.
1: Um, it looks like they, I mean, everything was going well for them until they took that out. Yeah. And it looks to me like, uh, you know, one more lobby group stepped up and said, and said, oh, just one more thing, right? If you could just take that one out, then, you know, and I think it was the music group. So I'm not sure if it was SOCAN or not, but yeah. I can't recall exactly, but it was a music group, which just showed that they were completely, this was all about lobbyists, right? They actually didn't care about you know the podcasters and that's and 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 all the people who use the internet right yeah. I mean you look back at these ambitions of years ago but this being about consumers and citizens and you know free Democracy and open things and, and that and, sort yeah. of stuff this is all just about um feeding a certain number of hungry mouths uh, in terms of that and the fact that they weren't Gibo as you Gilbo as you recall had a dreadful time trying to explain himself. Yeah on it. I mean, why didn't he just say we did it because musicians yeah. wanted us to, right? Um, but instead he just kind of danced around and that sort of stuff. I mean, it, if you're going to be captive to, to to various lobby groups, just I mean, be honest about it.
0: Well, and, and he went further, and that's where people like me and you who've spent lifetimes in journalism, the hair raises on the back of our neck when he says we want to be able to decide. Uh, whether or not criticism of us or political crit- criticism is acceptable. I mean, when you start to threaten that you are going to um, decide what's politically acceptable in terms of exchanges on the internet, then free speech and censorship just starts uh, blaring in the headlights. There.
1: Oh, absolutely. There seems to be. There seems to be. I mean. <laughs> I guess I guess I could say it was naive in uh, if I wanted to be generous, but there seems to be a certain oblivion to the idea that any of this is really a problem. Right. And and this is the sort of thing that happens when people like minded people just sit around and agree with each other all the time. (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah.
1: And 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 demonize their opponents and never sort of, you know, it never crosses their I'm sure it never crosses his mind that. Rachel Harder might be onto to something.
0: Yeah. Right? This is one of the conservative members of the committee that has really in really been focusing on this question of free speech. And all of us who use this as a tool and an instrument right. um, don't or, or want people, to be or people like law censorship. professors
1: like or people yeah. like law professors like Michael Geist or Emily Laidlaw, yeah. right, or, or more, or the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, right? or open media or the librarians, right? Expressing concerns, right? To just dismiss all those things as some sort of, you know, right-wing kookery is shocking. These are not right-wing people. These are people who care about civil liberties across the board. Um, And that, you know, a closed mind and a a closed fist in combination are pretty scary.
0: Yeah, well, it does conjure up the word authoritarian, for sure. Yes. Yeah. So I, I want to look at one of these. I mean, I'm everybody, I'm sure, agrees that the Broadcast Act needs to be updated. Um, there's other pieces of legislation that are associated with this, um, Bill C-11 on, on privacy concerns and issues that come around. But one of the, the concepts, I mean, the simplest one was, The big tech companies weren't forced to contribute to the Canada Media Fund in the same way that Canadian broadcasters and companies are. And if you want them to contribute more money, whether it's for English-speaking content or French-speaking content, make them do it. You've got the the power of the tax laws or any other piece of legislation to just say, write a cheque.
1: Oh, yeah, you can do that. I mean, they're going to start on July 1st, the GST will start being collected right. and remitted just on Netflix alone. That should be good for 50 million bucks a year. They could just move that money over if they wanted to. Yeah. I think a bigger thing is nobody stopped to think is doing things the way we've done them the last 40 years the right way to do things, right? There's been this entire new industry grow up of you uh, of YouTubers. You know, twenty five thousand people who are making more than a hundred thousand dollars a year, producing programming on on YouTube, and they're not doing it because of the CRT's help. They're doing it because the CRTC isn't in the way,
0: yeah. right?
1: So, I mean, why would you and and I think there's a, some pretty good arguments to be made that the system as we've had it, while it's fed and watered people in the creative and production industries, hasn't really produced. You know, a a lot of popular programming, right? So, yes, I mean, people say the Broadcasting Act needs to be updated. It does. I mean, my idea really is that what we need is an entire, and the BTLR panel recommended this, an entirely new entity called the Canadian Communications Commission. Correct. And 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 legislation based around understanding that the Internet is now the primary means of communication and that sort of stuff. And you could build those things into that if you if you wanted to. But I mean, trying to stuff the Internet into the Broadcasting Act is just I mean, it's just stupid.
0: Well, and you would know better than most, but to ask the CRTC, In its current form, or even in a reinvented form, to become the regulator of all things internet and broadcasting, (laughs) and to become these content control police and decide whether what I'm saying is right or not, or fair or not, or too critical of the government or not. I mean, it's an impossible task.
1: It pretty much is. I mean, they've given them $4 million in this year's budget just Mm -hmm. to figure out how many more people they're going to have to hire to uh, monitor your podcast and make sure <laughs> and make sure somewhere in here I flashed my Canadian passport so you know I'm a Canadian guest and that'll count against your how many yes. points you get. We for, should um, make
0: that clear that you're a Canadian and I'm a Canadian. We're talking about Canadian things and we're both in Canada.
1: That's right. right. Okay, right. So check, 100%, check, check. <laughs> 100% CanCon points for us today. Yeah.
0: <laughs> This question of, and, and I think uh, as I have done my reading on this, this notion of discoverability, which people are talking about, is kind of a Canadian concept, isn't it? Didn't that come get developed at some conference that was held here? It's about finding out the source, whether there's enough Canadian-ness or Americanness or Frenchness or whatever it is in the content that exists online.
1: Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. Uh, a few years ago, the uh, CMPA, the Canadian Media Producers Association, um, tried to get the CRTC to um, give, you know, have the internet service companies, your 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 internet supplier, yeah. give preferential treatment to Canadian content. And the CRTC, of course, quite rightly said no, um, because that violates net neutrality. But they're still trying to through C ten they're kind of trying to smuggle that in right so you become more discoverable I, to me i don't i i mean i understand that in perhaps in french that it feels overwhelming mm-hmm. when you go on and look at the streaming companies that there's nothing in french and that sort of stuff and there's just all this english coming in so i have a little bit more sympathy for it there on the english side of things i mean if you want to find something that's canadian you just go you get that little search tool thingy yeah. and type in canadian and yeah. you're good I mean, I did that on my Netflix subscription and they pop up all the time now. Yeah. Right. Simple so process. Yeah. It, it, it follows. I mean, that's what those things do. Algorithms and that sort of management. I think those are good areas for regulation um, going forward. But in terms of discoverability, I mean, you just it's so easy to discover anything on the Internet. You just look for what you want.
0: Yes, you can discover what you want, but if the government wants you to discover certain things uh, and they start to use the algorithmic, if that's a word, uh, the algorithmic approach. And so by definition, if they want you to discover more uh, French content or more Canadian content, it means by definition, other things are falling down on the list. If Canadian content's coming up... And you're seeing that other things are going down. So that's one thing for programming. Then there's the question of um, the discussion. And this is where it gets into censorship and the whole issue of free speech, which is if your speech is pushed up to the top because they like it better, and my speech is therefore by definition pushed down because they don't like it.
1: Right. Then yours is yours is being suppressed.
0: Exactly.
1: Right. Right. You can't move somebody to the front of the queue um, without moving somebody further back. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and, and freedom of expression, freedom of speech also deals with not just the, the freedom to say things, but the freedom to hear things. Right. Right. Um, and so there's, there's definite issues there because, um, the, the things that the things that I might prefer to hear, or I might want to hear or might just become exposed to openly on the internet, I might not get to, mm-hmm. um, you know, if if uh, if if I have to go through the wall of approved content, right? Um, first, that's it's it's pretty creepy. Well, this is it. the
0: the slippery slope of regulation. Like I find myself, you know, I I wouldn't mind some regulations on the big tech companies because they're always pushing. No, nobody's their opposed, product and nobody's opposed to that, right? Yeah. I mean, so let's no. do that. But when you start moving into You know, the substantive content of your citizenry's uh, commentary, you know, emails and podcasts and blogs. That's a whole other world.
1: Right. Yeah. If I'm worried about big tech being big brother to me, right, it doesn't make me feel any better because the government says, don't worry, I'll be your big brother. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I mean, if government's going to be regulating in these areas, it, it needs to be regulating the gatekeepers, And and that's the fundamental flaw with with C10 is it's regulating the gate kept, which is you and me and everybody else who's listening and and, and watching to this. Right. The people posting their videos of their grandchildren or or doing their podcast or doing their, their their webcast of some kind. Um, and just, you know, just getting their voice out there. That's the wonderful thing about the internet was that you didn't have to own a TV station or a network or a newspaper anymore and try to get your little letter to the editor past, you know, um, uh, somebody who would approve of it and that sort of stuff to have your voice heard in the public square. So the great thing about social media, everybody could have their voice heard. Some of the voices we don't like very much, but so what? I mean, that's you don't marketing. have to listen
0: you, to them. You don't if, have to listen to
1: them. I heard that from broadcast at the CRTC. I'd hear that from broadcasters. When people talked about questionable content from time to time, they'd always say, well, if people don't like it, they can change the channel. Yeah. Right. So exactly. I mean, you don't like Twitter. Don't go
0: on it. Right. Yeah. Or, and if you don't like the messages from somebody, block them or don't read them. Like this is not rocket science.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can you have all kinds of ways to manage your privacy and that sort of stuff. And I mean, like I said, I. It, it, it don't mean to condone some of those things and those those platforms are, you know, happy to I mean, they want to remain somewhat civil or people will just leave from them. But, right. yeah, like bottom line is, like I said, the the government coming in to say, uh, you know, don't worry, you know, we're here to help you.
0: We're in you know? charge.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll make sure, you know, everybody's nice to each other is kind of. Um, yeah, that's just creepy.
0: I was surprised this week because uh, the minister made, you know, a, another one of these kind of comments, which seemed bizarre, which was that there was a, a public demand for essentially for censorship, for for them to come in and do this. So I responded to that and said, you know, there's no great hue and cry. There's no public demand for censorship. That's And even the response on Twitter, because sometimes in Canada, I feel like, because we don't have that American constitution with the, the right to free speech that sometimes we, we don't care about it as much. But I was heartened this week that so many people responded to even a simple concept that they don't want censorship. They think they can make those decisions for themselves. Yeah, you know,
1: um, he's not right, because most people don't. There's been, yeah. d- d- you know, sometimes we all know with surveys, you can get the answer depending on how you ask the right. question. Yeah. But even if he was right, so what? Yeah. Having civil rights isn't about what most people want. Right. It's about yes. defending your rights despite what most people want, exactly. right? If, you know, like if most people, you know, thought, um, I can't think of an, an analogy right now, but if if most people thought I should be in jail, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't make them right. I still have my rights
0: yes, exactly. to not be
1: in jail, right? It's just it, 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 that's when he, when he comes out with things like that. That's what really gives me the creeps, right? That he doesn't seem to understand the concept of the Charter of Rights and Rights, um, uh, you know, and, and freedom right. of expression rights and, and all the other liberties that go with it.
0: I mean, that's the very basic point of free speech is that if I want mine, I have to let you have yours, even though I may vehemently disagree with you.
1: Right. And I may say, I disagree. Yeah. Without being punished. Right. By the government, without being removed from the conversation. Right. Just be able to say that. You know, I mean, there's lots of laws measuring exactly how you can say that. Right. How you can express yourself and, you know, we all and the bars are pretty high and that's fine. But, yeah, uh, the idea that the majority says Peter must shut up.
0: Yeah, because we don't like what he says. Right. Where, do you, where do you think this is going to go? I mean, um, they've got the support of of the bloc and and other parties. So even in a minority government, they could get this passed if they wanted. Um then what would have to happen? I mean, is, is the CRTC going to have to, you know, take its millions of dollars there and say and figure out that they can't really do this or that they don't want to do this? Is there any other mechanism for being the counter to the lobbyists that are, are being so effective on this bill?
1: Well, I mean... The CRTC would have to launch not just one process, but a series of protests, because numerous things within the bill are undefined. Um, It would have to define social media, for instance. It would have to carve out its own scope, decide whether it was going to regulate everything or what it was going to start with or where it was going to begin that sort of stuff, it would have to have consultations of, you know, a public process, one hopes, as opposed to the parliamentary secret process that we're seeing. Um, of consultation where people would again have the opportunity as they've had the past couple of months to engage. I mean, my concern is that they just get the usual suspects in that they've been seeing for the last 40 years. Um, but all, and then it would be, ch- this will absolutely be challenged in court. I mean, there's no question about that in at least two different ways um, regarding its constitutionality. And then the CRTC proceedings themselves would likely get challenged. And what you're going to see is after having had 10 wonderful years of prosperity in the Canadian film and television production industry, you're going to see investment freeze up. Right. Even last year, uh, according to the CMPA stats, the industry shrank by 2%, which was the first time in a long time pretty much COVID related, mm-hmm. right? But foreign investment was up by five or 6%, which saved it from being worse than it was. Okay, that foreign investment is not going to be very as interested. I can't speak for them. I don't know them. Yeah. But in a regulatory environment as uncertain as Canada's, right? Where they don't know. I mean, they've been investing in in the Canadian film and television industry for 10 years at high levels, lots of jobs, lots of productivity, yeah. that sort of stuff. And now they're just getting slapped around. Um, I, I'm afraid the, at the end of the day, the length of process for the CRTC will take seven to eight years. It'll be that long before any of these, uh, any of these groups see a nickel.
0: Because it's gonna take so long to settle it and it will have to go through the courts.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's a series of processes. I mean, yeah. the CRTC has just finished a process uh, involving uh, wholesale access rates for small Internet companies. And it's it's six years and going.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. It actually goes back to it's, it's actually eight, nine years. If you want to take it back, these things take a, their process is really yeah. long. So if you wanted to like that's one of the things you could have done in a new communications act is Get some regulatory zip in these processes and that sort of stuff. So,
0: well, mean, it's so—it's so just about power. Right? Well, that's what trouble. I mean, in, in the second part of the podcast today, we're talking about Bill C fifteen, uh, the undrip, the you know, um, bill to embrace the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. It too is so ill defined or unclear and it's good there's going to be a long process in the courts like we keep shooting ourselves in the foot for inviting foreign investment to come in to help us grow and build the economy that we so desperately need yeah it,
1: you know and it's too bad because a lot of this is lack of consultation like yeah. in c10 yeah i mean they could Same have corrected issue, a lot yeah. of, you know i mean they didn't consult at all with the youtubers i mean the hundred and sixty thousand yeah. canadians right? Um, upload yeah. content to YouTube. 160,000, right? They and probably I, had a you know, view. <laughs> they they might have had a point of view. You might have learned something, right? But they just listened to the people they wanted to listen because it, and it just makes it so very obvious that it's just a political thing, right? Um, and it's just about fighting for votes with the block. Yeah. And that's no way, that's no way to run a country. But honestly, with this and, and some of the other bills, yeah. Just the process alone, it's like it's amateur night at the Bijou, you know. It it really <laughs> is.
0: Peter, good to talk to you, and 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 we'll talk again on this because it ain't over yet.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it'll be in the Senate on Wednesday, I think. So,
0: <laughs> we'll, um,
1: we'll. hopefully, I mean, hopefully, the Senate will manage the process with a little bit more dignity than's yeah. occurring
0: right now. And, and try and do what we're supposed to do, which is sober second thought and maybe hear some from some of those people who are. Well, part and then, then the maybe role. some
1: may, and then maybe people can find out what the bill actually says. <laughs> whether,
0: it may be too to secret today. for us to look at as well. We don't know. <laughs> maybe we won't be allowed to look exactly.
1: at. Exactly. It. it might be too secret <laughs> for the Senate.
0: Thanks so much. Peter Menzies uh, spent 10 years on the CRTC, the final four is vice chairman of telecommunications. So he actually knows what he's talking about on this stuff. Really great to connect again. Thanks, Peter.
1: Thanks very much. Take care. Have a great weekend.
0: And stay with us. As I said, we're going to change gears, but not really. And take a look at what is going on with the government's legislation on UNDRIP, the constitutional questions there, uh, which will be many. So in just a minute. Dwight Newman. Well, as I said at the top of the podcast today, uh, our theme is really words matter. They're really, really important, and we need to define them, whether we're talking about broadcasting or other laws. And in this uh, case, we're talking about the implementation of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So we'll probably just call that UNDRIP from here on in just so um, it will be more efficient. This is um, a UN declaration and the government has said through its bill C-15 that it wants to make it a law in Canada. This is another one of the huge constitutional issues. So we have turned to Dr. Dwight Newman, Canadian research chair in indigenous rights in constitution and international law and a professor at the University of Saskatchewan College of Laws. So welcome to you, uh, Dr. Newman, it's a real pleasure.
2: Oh, well, I'm glad to be here.
0: Great, so here we are as a, a parliament looking at this particular law, C-15. You testified several times the last time uh, the government brought this forward in a different bill. Uh, you had some serious concerns about that one at the time. What are you thinking about Bill C-15? now?
2: Well Bill C-15 has uh, uh, one major change from Bill C-262 which is uh, it gets a little technical but uh, in essence um, one of the most ambiguous provisions of it or the one that had the least predictable effects was in a section of the statute that could go into immediate operation on Bill C-262, possibly. And it's now been put in a purpose clause, which would mean that it applies just to the interpretation of the legislation.
0: Okay. All right, so hold the phone there. Okay. <laughs> Let's try and tell uh, everybody what that exactly means, because the, un- the understanding of some is that this now impacts every Canadian law and that it actually has precedent or um, it it is, there's a veto over any new or existing laws that come forward. So tell us what that difference means between 262 and this new C-15 as you understand it.
2: So as I understand it, um, the courts are not positioned to immediately start applying the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples or UNDRIP. However, um, Parliament is committing to a process where UNDRIP would lead to the modification, probably of all Canadian law. Um, So there are major consequences ahead, um, but there are further steps to be taken on the road.
0: Okay, so what what does that mean? So there's an existing law on the books about uh, whatever it may be, immigration policy or health issues of some kind, the pandemic, uh, you know, there are laws uh, on the books. If UNDRIP came into effect or when it comes into effect, what does that mean?
2: Um, so, when Bill C-15 comes into effect, assuming that it does, uh, it means that the government is committing to modifying Canadian laws to try to be consistent with this declaration. And it covers everything. I mean, uh, a lot of people talk about free, prior, and informed consent as uh, a key part of UNDRIP, which it is, but mm-hmm. it has provisions on land rights. It has provisions on um, uh, religious freedom of Indigenous peoples, all kinds Kinds of things. And so there's going to be a long process of sorting out what laws need to be changed to achieve uh, what this bill is demanding. Uh, There's a lot of work ahead.
0: All right so I'm just going to go through some of the language here because uh, we're we're asking you to do the translation today from sure. uh, from law professor and constitutional expert to um, mere mortals here trying to figure out what it does. The bill affirms that the undrip that the um, United Nations declaration has application in Canadian law and provides a framework for the federal government to ensure that its laws are consistent with it. So that's what you're just saying. Now, as a government, as a country, we must look at every single law that's enacted in this country, regardless of the topic or subject matter to see if it is consistent with UNDRIP.
2: Uh, In essence, yeah. I mean, that uh, clause you've just described, that's describing the purpose, and then Mm -hmm. the next two sections say that the government's committing to all necessary measures to make Canadian law consistent with UNDRIP. Um, and it's committing to this process of an action plan um, to figure out how to do that. And there's a three-year timeline for that, which, again, goes back to there's a lot of work ahead. But uh, um, there's a lot in the Declaration and a lot in Canadian law to try to put together.
0: Now, what have we learned from the province of British Columbia? Because they as a province said, okay, we're adopting UNDRIP, we accept it, their legislature ruled on that. Have we seen anything in, in BC that would give us some signposts or guideposts as to what it means?
2: Surprisingly little because the progress has been very slow on their action plan. So we don't see a lot from that. And what we have seen is the ways that people went and interpreted the bill right after it was enacted uh, were more far apart than I think people were expecting. And so people have been trying to take the BC legislation into court and argue for an immediate application, even though it was worded to try to avoid that. Um, Mm. Courts haven't accepted that, but I mean, we can't learn a lot from the BC experience other than there's a lot of unpredictability ahead.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, let's go back and, uh, and and dissect some of this a little bit more. So the Declaration's um, 46 articles, it says, and this is uh, our understanding of it, Does they do not create new rights. Instead, they have elaborated upon existing international human rights and all the instruments uh, to apply to Indigenous peoples to give them Um, I don't know, specific protections when it comes to cultural, historical, economic circumstances. That's extremely confusing for somebody who's not a lawyer. Sure.
2: (laughs) So uh, the the declaration comes out of a a multi-decade process um, of Indigenous peoples working on it first, um, and they had a 1994 draft and then different governments around the world entered into negotiations on this. A lot got changed from that because governments wouldn't accept it and then there were late changes to it. Um, but what, what it's trying to do is to say um, what does it mean in the specific circumstances of Indigenous peoples to apply the other human rights covenants from the international level. Um, So the Universal Declaration of Human Rights spawned these two covenants, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. And then there are some others. And Canada is a party to these various treaties. Mm -hmm. And UNDRIP isn't a treaty, um, but it's this declaration that in some negotiation has been sort of what What do these other treaties mean in the context of indigenous peoples? So that's sort of what it's trying to say. Can there. you
0: give us an example of, for example? <laughs> um, sure. So, well, I'll, I'll
2: give the example of uh, religious freedom, say. Mm-hmm. And so um, in uh, in international treaties, um, there. Um, um, short descriptions. Um, so the international covenant on civil and political rights. So it'd be a section about um, the right to uh, believe and to manifest religion and a few other things, this stuff, but not a lot of details, nothing that would say, well, what does that mean for repatriation of Uh, human remains in cultures where that's significant or what does it mean for burial sites um, or what does it mean for access to sacred sites and so UNDRIP has some specific things on those things and gives some more detail on religious freedom in indigenous contexts. that would be a a a simpler example I guess yeah Um, we could have some more complicated
0: ones yeah it is it's very timely of course given the Uh, the horrific discovery at at Kamloops, Um, and there's differing calls from uh, Indigenous people across this country. Um, Some people want to preserve the site. Some people want it uh, excavated so that they can actually uh, find out the numbers, the true numbers, et cetera. So um, would, would UNDRIP make a difference in that? Isn't that something that that all Canadians are going to uh, have to weigh in on?
2: Yeah, I mean, UNDRIP might not provide a clear answer to everything. Uh, on that, though, it'll provide some answers to some things. That's a pretty specific article, yeah. and I, I sort of latched onto one of those to give a more specific example. The the more contentious pieces that arise with UNDRIP are things like the fact that then it says that um, various kinds of government decisions, um, there needs to be cooperation and consultation in order to obtain free and informed consent from Indigenous peoples to various kinds of developments. Um, what that means is is debated. What it means in UNDRIP is debated. And I published an article on sort of two rival interpretations right. of whether it's actually it's, necessary to obtain consent or just to try to under those articles. And yeah, that's, that's tricky.
0: <laughs> that is some of the responses from Indigenous communities. It's not just about listening to us Uh, complain or make our case or statement and then you sit there and nod your head and carry on with what you're doing, uh, sort of one interpretation, or is it actually a veto?
2: Right. Yeah. And I mean, you'll hear from a lot of Indigenous peoples that they don't like the word veto because it implies they would withhold consent unreasonably. Um, uh, at the same time, people do use it as a shorthand. If cons- if it's necessary to obtain consent um, to do a certain thing, ultimately then it can't be done unless uh, the Indigenous peoples who are meant to consent do agree. And so it would get called by shorthand a veto. Um, and that shifts uh, power over a lot of decisions in Canada. Um, if, uh, if UNDRIP is uh, fully implemented in accordance with certain interpretations, of those articles. And that's one of the things people are talking about. And uh, I mean, apart from uh, sort of the the ideas that a lot of people might agree with, there's also the risk of how will some people use that? And we've seen some pretty challenging situations on resource projects where rights might've been deployed a bit strategically um, around sort of environmental issues that matter to a lot of people too, um, but that aren't straightforwardly about the indigenous issues that uh, that it might, that the duty to consult might have uh, might have started out as being about. So uh, but, there's a lot of complications.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and it's it's awkward to even use the phrase you know indigenous peoples in the sense that you have very you have a wide range of views inside. That population, just as you do inside Canada, there's lots of you can't just say Canadians believe because you know there's a whole range of ideas so what how do we even begin to sort that out like what constitutes uh, consultation with indigenous people.
2: Right. Well, on consultation, we at least have a, a lot of court decisions over the last 15 years. This is one of the worries that some have had, that uh, are we throwing out the duty to consult analysis that the courts have worked so hard at? Um, and one of the big challenges is just who who's going to be consulted or consent obtained from? Does the word indigenous people mean the same groups uh, organized in the same way um, as, uh, as we've been working with at the sort of the individual First Nation level? Or does it imply something different? That's going to be something to be sorted out as well. But questions around who represents who, and so on. Um, we can't really avoid those, as as we saw with the the Wet'suwet'en issues. Yes, and the hereditary chiefs the, hereditary. the elected yeah, chiefs. Yeah. Exactly.
0: So, so how do you even start to sort that out? Where, where do, we, in this plan that will um, commence once the bill has received assent, uh, then then what do we do? Like, what's the first step? Uh,
2: well, there's going to have to be a lot of discussions uh, um, between the government and different Indigenous uh, representatives and communities somehow. And um, I, I don't know a simple way to describe how that gets going, um, but uh, there's going to have to be a lot of people coming together to try to chart out a path forward. And I hope the government's been thinking about it already, because if uh, if they haven't, um, I mean, even, even figuring out how to get underway is going to take. Some time.
0: Well, uh, th- I think that is part of the problem. The first time we started discussing this, uh, both, you know, in the Senate, and in Parliament, and in the country, was that this was in some ways just an aspirational document. It was to say, yes, we agree in principle that the indigenous community must be part of the decision-making process. Uh, and we're going to attempt to do that. But this, this is now different. This is now saying. Um, laws, decision-making on, on everything, including resource projects, must be done um, with full consultation and agreement of Indigenous communities. And, and that's a whole different thing, particularly if it, um, even a, a three-year implementation process is not a long time. Right. Well, the
2: implementation will be over the coming decades, one could yeah. anticipate, but the planning over the next three years. Um, I guess uh, the, the the UN Declaration remains a, a more aspirational document at international law, or what's sometimes called soft law. It's sort of a statement of where things... Uh, Uh, are being expressed as, but it's not legally binding. And I think anyone that that thinks about from an international law perspective would agree with that. What's happening now is Canada is saying that it's passing a statute that Uh, commits Canada in its domestic law to making all these changes in response to this uh, to this particular document Um, and so that will be uh, a legal requirement now for Canada to go ahead and do that Uh, and there are all kinds of challenging questions ahead um, in terms of how, how how does Canada reach that action plan mm-hmm. and what happens if some people disagree with it? Can they challenge it in court? Um, uh, all kinds of things. And I mean, it affects not just Indigenous peoples, but everyone. Um, and of course, in resource sectors, it affects resource companies pretty directly, and they're going to want to be part of the discussions on the action plan. Um, uh, and I guess, hopefully, we're through the pandemic before where they have mm-hmm. to put a lot of resources uh, into teams that are going to be discussing this action plan. But there's a, a lot that, that stems from this bill.
0: That's one of the issues, of course, that's there. It's the, And we can cite lots of specific examples of research uh, or resource projects and, of course, pipelines, et cetera. But it does mean, as, as we have this conversation now, this is a very uncertain climate for businesses to try and make any decision whether they want to develop a particular project or put money or back a particular project when they don't know the climate or the circumstance in which they will be operating.
2: Indeed. I mean, it's it's been an uncertain climate before Bill C-15 mm-hmm. and Bill C-15 C- adds uh, another layer of uh, of some uncertainties uh, that I mean there are some real challenges for business and investment um, in the current climate in Canada and uh, um, that's not necessarily a great thing for indigenous peoples themselves. Uh, there were indigenous representatives that appeared at the committees to oppose the bill out of a few different things. Some said that they hadn't been consulted about it
0: right. um,
2: and so ironically it wouldn't meet its own standards. Mm-hmm. Now legally it doesn't need to yet because it's not Yet in force, right. um, but that that speaks to some of the challenges ahead in future. But then some uh, that are involved with the with the resource industry and see that that's the largest uh, source of jobs um, for many indigenous communities um, uh, expressed some uh, some concerns about the the risks that could come from it. So it's overall very symbolically important to a lot of uh, a lot of indigenous people in Canada, but um, there's a nuanced discussion to be had about it in a lot of ways too and I mean there's also been uh, for lack of a better word a critique from uh, the Indigenous left um, that uh, are sort of saying well this will constrain their sovereignty um, uh, Mm -hmm. that they thought that they had and so on and that's a different argument altogether so it's a a pretty complicated nuanced uh, conversation underway.
0: Well, because there's still some very basic questions when when we talk about First Nations uh, themselves and self-government, even those definitions are not yet clear.
2: Uh, That's right. I mean, there there are some things that are clearer than others and some things temporarily clear. Uh, I mean, this bill is going to uh, surely have to call for a uh, a whole scale revision of the Indian Act. Um, and that's been talked about for decades. Um, no one's really been able to achieve agreement on what would replace it. So then, because there are some things that, that you can't just leave a vacuum on um, the governance structure or, or legal empowerment for governance structures, or you can't just leave a vacuum on what, uh, what law applies to various matters that it does cover um even while everyone recognizes that it's very paternalistic in a lot of ways and needs change but uh if we've been struggling for decades on how to to do that maybe there hasn't been a sustained conversation maybe bill c15 supports that but uh it's a tall measure to say well in the the next three years there's going to be a plan sorted out how to do this and even to get it done over the next couple of decades um uh there's some challenges but i guess um, some changes are needed and um, <laughs> the hope is uh, by its
0: proponents that C-15 would uh, would lead to those. So uh, as as which I guess will have to happen I was just listening to Jody Wilson-Raybould on that question there has to be um, an elimination over time of the Indian Act it has to be dismantled but there are certain protections for Indigenous people that still exist in that act so You know, you've got to kind of take that out piece by piece as you're layering on this other uh, set of rules.
2: That's right, yeah. I mean the, the Indian Act uh, deals uh, just with First Nations and only with certain First Nations right. and then there are First Nations or non-status Indians sometimes um, the the terminology goes that are outside the Indian Act uh, and then there are of course Métis and Inuit uh, peoples in Canada that, uh, that aren't in the Indian Act and sort of what are the, the frameworks for everybody and what do you do about the fact that there are uh, historical treaties there are modern treaties and then there are non treaty situations and each of those has some distinctive features <laughs> and uh, there's there's uh, i mean i, I don't want to just make things sound more and more difficult but i I just want people to be aware that there are some complex uh things ahead in terms of the even the circumstances that legally apply right now in different contexts well even and, the, the... Uh,
0: yeah the changes to the citizenship oath uh, being discussed to recognize indigenous rights and treaties but a lot of those treaties are disputed not only um in the courts but amongst and between indigenous groups themselves so even uh, I, I keep coming back to this words matter and, and it's hard to capture that those uh those subtle differences
2: well, there can be some challenges capturing subtle differences in a, a short yeah. bill, and yeah, Bill C-15, I'll say, has one of the longest preambles I've ever seen in a <laughs> bill, um, and the preamble is um, multiple times the length of the uh, the actual operative sections of the bill itself, right. which... Um, <laughs> Uh, generate a lot of change with a very small number of words uh, and uh, hopefully they're the right words uh, because words do matter.
0: So on that topic if I can just shift for a moment so Quebec has uh, declared that it wants to become a nation uh, with French as its only official language and that they want to make um, a unilateral change to the constitution in order to make that happen. Are they talking about the constitution to which they are not a signature? Uh, sort of, yes. So um,
2: uh, one can see some ironies in this. Uh, at the same time, legally, Quebec is part of the Canadian Constitution, right. and most of their members of Parliament voted for the Canadian Constitution and represented Quebec in that vote. Um, uh, it is uh, a long-staying grievance that they didn't, as a province, sign on at the time, but according to the rules on constitutional change, the Constitution Act 1982 legally came into force and it does apply to to Quebec and so on. They're trying to use one of the amending formulae there. Um, They claim they're changing only their provincial constitution with these uh, changes, even though the of the provincial constitution they're talking about is in the constitution act 1867 on their argument um uh, the real question is are they changing something that's more about the constitution of canada than just the provincial constitution of quebec and there are some grounds for skepticism about their arguments about the change they're making so
0: well it's just i mean if we if they are to declare themselves a nation we don't actually have a definition of that internally inside canada uh, no, we,
2: we don't have a, a definition for that. Um, I mean, the, the federal parliament has also passed a symbolic bill recognizing Quebec as a nation. Um, well, they okay, they've uh,
0: recognized Quebecers as a people, okay. which is kind of a different thing, right? Sure,
2: yeah, you're <laughs> right to say that. The, the words here matter. So, yes. yeah. um, and uh, I think mean, the provision Quebec's inserting, if they can legally put it in, um, It's basically symbolic. If If it affects other provinces, then it's beyond their powers. So it's symbolic, but words matter, even symbolic words, and courts might use those in some way around interpretation. And as you say, we don't have a definition of a a nation or what the implications of that would be. Um, We've been through similar debates before in uh, 1987, when there was discussion about uh, Quebec as a distinct society. Uh, That would have had more dramatic effects perhaps it was going to be a change passed through the uh, the unanimity formula um, by uh, the federal government and all the provinces if it had been put in through the Meech Lake Accord but uh, at the end of the day um, yeah I mean it's the same kind of struggle and Quebec's trying to do something on that to do something at least symbolically and some of it might come down to some political maneuvering too Uh, yeah but it does
0: seem to be kind of opening up the floodgates when you hear uh premier kenny and and even premier mo say okay great you go ahead with that quebec because that sort of opens the doors for us to declare that we are distinct and unique in our particular approach to uh, governing and living and doing business and all of those things uh, a a different perhaps a slightly different definition of culture, but nevertheless it is. I think Westerners feel different than Central Canadians and there's differences with East Coasters and all all of that that brings us all together. So is it possibly kind of opening the constitutional floodgates a bit, even the referendum on equalization?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting precedent. Well, both of those are interesting precedents in terms of how could others build creatively upon them in other ways. Mm. Um, We're into a period um, the last few years um, where suddenly there are pressures pulling Canada apart in little ways um, and I don't want to overstate that but Nobody I don't has... want to understate it either I mean there's a surprising yeah. number of votes now for separatist parties in the uh, in the prairies um, yeah. there are these new pressures in Quebec uh, I mean we shouldn't we shouldn't laugh these off these are oh, things exactly. in terms of things sort of pulling a bit at Canada and so even I mean maybe they were justified but the, the mobility restrictions between provinces during COVID sort of pulled the country apart a little bit um, as compared to uh, a vision where people could travel freely through the country. Yeah. And uh, there were circumstances that led to that, but each little thing is is pulling some things apart. And we went through a period where uh, there weren't a lot of things that were pulling Canada apart. The, the federal government wasn't imposing central policies quite as much for a while. And that sort of kept the peace. And the last few years, the federal government has wanted to pursue more centralized policies on various matters. And that leads to pressures that pull things apart a little bit. And then you had some unique circumstances, obviously with COVID um, that have come into. But uh, there's something going on here that's uh, um, not to be uh, just ignored.
0: Well, I think that's, and, and we've had lots of discussions about that in the wake of the budget that the uh, and the kind of spending that we saw throughout the pandemic, much of which was needed, but which now appears that it's going to continue. Uh, so, you know, a little bit more of an interne- interventionist approach from Ottawa. And at the same time, as you say, during the pandemic, seeing 10, sometimes 13, very different approaches to how to respond and how to deal with this issue because of, again, constitutionally jurisdictional differences, right?
2: Right. I mean, those are the constitutional rights of the provinces Mm -hmm. to pursue their policies. But in some other environment, we might have seen more cooperation take place um, or more ability to draw uh, people together from different parts of the country around some common policies through through non-coercive means, but through yeah. sort of voluntary discussion. And we didn't really see as much of that as one might have in some other circumstance.
0: Well I'm I'm looking at a headline here as as our conversation comes to an end from the justice minister saying consent is impossible to define. Uh, when questioned about uh, bill c15 so i've got a feeling we're going to be coming back to you from time to time to see if you can interpret progress or even tell us if there's been any in terms of sorting out what this means
2: well i'd, I'd be happy to try to talk about <laughs> it again as uh, as this moves forward because what are uh,
0: what are you and your community and i mean constitutional law experts in canada of which you were one um how are are you taking this on are are you as a group or a community trying to sort this out yes you come and testify at senate committees and house of commons committees and you write papers is there any concerted effort or does it actually first have to take um a court challenge before you can you can inject your views
2: right well those that work on pure constitutional law might not be engaged with this as closely. Um, a lot of my work is on um, Indigenous rights and international law and Indigenous rights and natural resources, and so I'm thinking about these things all the time. Um, there are various, I guess I'd say, sub-communities of people that are working together in different ways, um, probably trying to say some things about what this might mean. Um, uh, I'm not involved with it, but there's a, a research group that uh, that is working on a on a grant where they're trying to say what what would replace the Indian Act. And I think there are a couple dozen scholars involved with that, um, many of them indigenous. And so if they come to some creative uh, answers that could feed into what happens after Bill C-15. But uh, I mean, partly academics uh, uh, work a lot on our own and uh, present a lot of contrasting views to try to help uh, with discussion or just to try to help interpret things and uh, uh we we trust to uh, parliamentary committees to bring <laughs> them together or uh, or i guess the whoever the action plan group is but it, it won't be just academics involved in this yeah. i mean um, indigenous communities and peoples, obviously, are going to be involved, but also resource sector um, companies, I'm sure, are going to have teams dedicated to this. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of work ahead. So. so with all
0: this uncertainty and and huge fat question marks beside everything, do you think it's the right way to go?
2: Oh, that's a really tough question to, to sum up with because um, at a symbolic level, I think it is important legislation. Um, I would have preferred personally more more definition and clarity and planning ahead. Um, and so Bill C-262, I, uh, I expressed that concern and thought mm-hmm. that uh, it needed to be clarified because some of those things were clarified. I'm more comfortable with C-15, but I wish more were defined and better defined uh, than is the case. Um, but it's really symbolically important. And I think there are important steps ahead for Canada. So I, I try to have a, a nuanced view on it in a sense. And um mm. think in, in a lot of ways, this has the potential for a good thing um, with a lot of risks with it. And I wish we could have avoided some of the risks, but um, assuming it, it is passed, let's all work with it as effectively as we can. Uh, realizing that it is important um, to uh, rebuild relationships with Indigenous communities and to foster conditions for Indigenous people in Canada uh, and everyone in Canada to have uh, better futures ahead.
0: Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Newman. I know this is a, is a tough one and, and, and we're kind of figuring it out as we all go along collectively here, so thanks for your insights. It's really helpful. Sure. Thank you. Great. Dr. Dwight Newman, is the Canadian Research Chair in Indigenous Rights in Constitutional International Law, and he's a professor at the University of Saskatchewan College of Law. He's got a whole other list of credentials, too. So check him out and you'll uh, you'll figure that out. Thanks again for your time. That's it for No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen. We'll see you again soon.